This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. been an awakening. Have you felt it? As if the top-grossing movies suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we have a bad feeling about this. I am Glenn Butler of the Wednesday Walk and many fine podcasts on this sheedy award-winning network, welcoming you to what promises to be a longer and broader discussion of the new Star War, uh, The Force Awakens, than we had on our last episode. But of course I can't do that alone, and so I must first bring in my equal number in what we had hoped to call uh, the Brothers of Discussion before I found out that that's actually the name of somebody else's podcast. Yeah, uh, good job there. Uh, two somebodies, presumably. At least. <laughs> and, and so we must just live with ourselves as we are. Uh, which is something I had hoped to avoid. Mr. Scott Butler, how does it feel to be part of a podcast network that's just recently won not only Best Podcast Network from the eminent Sheedy Awards, but also more specific <laughs> awards for shows and hosts that are not ours or us? So our podcast network has won awards, but we ourselves have not. We're like the guy that played Man on Street in an Academy Award winning film. Yeah, we're the person sitting behind Daniel Craig pretending to sweep. Yes. We are Englishman who got his leg chopped off by William Wallace in Braveheart. Ah, uh, that's that's an honor. I co-sign this analogy. It's excellent. Uh, that is the voice of our very special guest. Uh, close personal <laughs> longtime friend of mine who was the caps-locked impetus for the old podcast to return to the Star Wars universe, Elena Kelly. <laughs> Alana, how Hello. are you doing tonight? I'm doing fantastic, Glenn and Scott. I'm ridiculously excited to be here. Well, we, we are glad to have you. We are always glad to have guests who are uh, very interested in popular culture and the exploration of it. Now, now, Scott, I know you had some concerns because we're uh, repeating kind of a topic that we had in our last episode, right? Well, I mean... This is the highest grossing film in the history of grossing films, and we already talked about it for like five or ten minutes on the tail end of our last podcast, so... Yeah, well, well, true, but I think, I think we might have a couple more things to say. Uh, if you think we can find something else to say. I mean, what is there to say about this film? <laughs> Uh, well, first is one of my favorite things to provide, and that is context. I'm interested in if we have a couple of different perspectives on where we're coming from on Star Wars and the general relationship we've had uh, with the movies. Um, Alana, how, how does that work out for you? Well, one thing real quick, um, just spoilers, because spoilers, although it was last month, so get on it people who consider themselves fans. Um, this movie's so worth $880 million. How many people have not seen it yet? <laughs> That's a valid, valid point. Um, so the movies for me, like the, I, I wasn't like 
I actually didn't know that The Force Awakens was coming to theaters until like very shortly before it came because I'm not like a super fan. And I actually knew it was coming primarily because of the torrid internet discussion of the casting of uh, uh, John Boyega as a stormtrooper and what, what that might mean for the future of the white race, which which doesn't make any sense because Star Wars is set in the past. Um, <laughs> I heard about it from uh, I heard about it from from that angle, and I was like, "What? There's a Star Wars project? Oh, it's J.J. Abrams doing it? Awesome!" Because I'm a big fan of um, of his Star Trek. Yes, I will call them reboots, Glenn. I know you have feelings about that, but um, <laughs> you're outvoted. And then. Yeah, so I'm and and just to finish answering your question, I'm a huge fan of the OT, um, especially Return of the Jedi. I watched over and over again at age ten with my best friend in fifth grade. We were watching our Snapple, or we were, we were drinking our Snapples uh, that her mom got from Costco, and we were like rooting for the Ewoks because that's how you merchandise that film to ten year old girls. Um, <laughs> You know, it was just we watched it so much, and it just it, the the emotion is just so there. And when I finally got myself to seeing the trailer for Episode Seven, um, which was actually like November of 2015, like very you know close to when it was actually going to be released, I just immediately started crying at the sound of the music. And I'm like, I definitely need to see this, and I'm going to have deep feelings about it. And I had seen all three prequels uh the last you know episode two and three i actually watched under protest for like personal compulsion to complete um but i was that, not a huge fan of well, any of those projects. that speaks well of you as a person yeah so but but when i heard that george lucas had relinquished the fr- like his baby into sure hands i was incredibly optimistic yeah, so that's that's where I'm coming from. I'm I'm a fan, but I am not a super fan. Like I don't have my own subreddit. Um, so, <laughs> uh, who among us does? Yeah, that the the whole discussion around John Boyega was incredibly regrettable, wasn't it? Oh any, man! Anytime <laughs> any black person gets cast in a sci-fi or fantasy or superhero film. It's the same discussion. Yeah, I don't I don't remember if we mentioned it on the Hunger Games podcast. There was the little black girl who was cast as a black character from the books and suddenly everybody was mad. Yes. Yeah, I remember reading it and the author signposted for us that she was a character of color and then when she was cast that way everyone lost their damn mind. It didn't make any sense at all. Yeah. For for uh for Rue back in the Hunger Games. Yes. Uh totally. And um, I, I, I know Scott's happy, and, and so am I to find another big fan of Return of the Jedi, because I know that has come in for for some criticism um, among fans, but it's great to have a nice happy ending sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, it's a happy ending. I wish Lucas hadn't reissued them or whatever he did to them, because I really liked that guy's face, who was the original Anakin. You know, and like his, his Force Ghost became Hayden Christensen in a way that I don't approve of. Not in a way. Yeah, that too is is regrettable. Uh, oh yeah, Scott. Uh, what's your relationship been with these movies over the course of your life? I'd have to say I used to be a much bigger fan than I am now, and that's mainly due to the prequel trilogy. Mm. We talked in a previous podcast when we were talking about Star Trek that there was a fairly significant point in my evolution as a fandom member when I realized that I can still be a fan of a media property without having to love every single part of that media property. And the two main things that forced me to acknowledge this were Star Trek Voyager and the prequel trilogy. 
Yeah, definitely. I I I I felt very closely to that. I mean, throughout the '90s, I was like your standard, you know, little kid nerd boy, all into you know Star yeah. Trek and Star Wars. It was you know entirely my bag, and then that was part of a growing disillusionment with a couple of things. Yes, yeah, Star Wars is such a huge part of my childhood because our mother was a huge fan. Oh yeah, totally. The earliest memory I can actually place a specific date on, I'm not sure exactly which one actually happened earlier, but the two earliest memories I can actually date are the day that Star Wars premiered on HBO and when <laughs> Empire was in theaters and our cousin Steven came over with a bootleg tape. I was just hoping you were going to tell that story. And I distinctly remember that. I don't remember off the top of my head if Star Wars premiered on HBO before or after Empire was in theaters and Steven came over with the bootleg tape, but I specifically remember both of those incidents. Because at the time that Star Wars premiered on HBO, we had this television that would only work for about two, two and a half hours. If you ran it for more oh, wow. than that, the picture started to get really fuzzy. And so, Mom warned me the day before, because, you know, I'm a dirtbag kid, you know, two, three, four years old or something. And I always got up way early in the morning, and Mom was not having that. And so she warned me the night before, when you get up, don't watch the television. Because Star Wars is going to be on, and I want the television to work all the way through Star Wars. So don't go watching six hours of cartoons, and so the picture's all fuzzy when Star Wars comes on. And of course, I completely forgot about this the next morning. But I remembered Star Wars was on, so I flipped it on to HBO and watched about the last hour of Poltergeist, waiting for Star Wars to come on. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> at, at three, four years yeah, old. Yeah, two, three, four years old, something like this. Fantastic. And I specifically remember when Steven came over with the bootleg tape of Empire because I remember being very confused because he came over and he said he had this bootleg tape of The Empire Strikes Back and mom was all excited because she hadn't seen The Empire Strikes Back because she had a dirtbag three-year-old at home and she couldn't get out to theaters. Well, two-year-old, well, depending <laughs> on when it came out in the year, two or three years old. So she was very excited when Steven brought this bootleg tape over and I remember being very confused Cause, cause, cause we didn't have a bootleg tape player. Our VCR played the rectangular tapes. I didn't understand Ooh. why the tape would have to be in a bootleg shape. Why would that be an advantage? Could you put like a longer tape in there because the extra thing on the end? But that wouldn't fit in our VCR, especially because our VCR was the one where you didn't just put the tape in the front, but it had the whole carriage that popped out of the top, and then you put the tape in, and then you popped it back down. A bootleg tape's not going to fit in there. The whole thing is made for rectangular tapes. I didn't understand how it was going to work. <laughs> yeah, 35 years ago, might as well have been the Frontier days. This, this that was, story this was is my... a gorgeous ode to 1980. <laughs> <laughs> and, and mind you, the Frontier days in Connecticut were a much longer time ago than in other places. <laughs> this oh was my. my young, young mind operating on very little information, but still struggling to make sense of it. <laughs> For real. Also, as far as I can recall, Return of the Jedi is the first film I ever saw in theaters. That is something that mom would talk about sometimes. She took you to Return of the Jedi and had to like lean Ooh. over and whisper the opening crawl to you because you couldn't read yet. No, Jabba's dialogue. Uh -huh. when, Jabba, when Jabba was talking to people. She... Oh yeah, because it's subtitled, yeah. yeah uh -huh. I went, the first time I saw it, I went with dad. And then the second time... I saw it, it was the three of us. And both times, they had to like tell me the dialogues. I couldn't read quickly enough to... I could read a little, but I couldn't read quickly enough to get 
that much dialogue before the line went off the screen. Oh, that's perfect. Uh, yeah. The, this... shout, out, shout out to Scott and Glenn's uh, late mother, who was clearly awesome. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she, she was the best. Uh, especially in her early adoption of the VHS format. So basically mm-hmm. by the time I existed, we had VHS tapes of the Star Wars trilogy. Nice. Mom was a huge Star Wars fan, a huge Trekkie, a huge science fiction fan in general, and a huge football fan. The, these are the nice. fandoms we inherited from our mother. Interesting. And 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 the fandom we inherited from our father, of course, is this old house. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> which which is is a somewhat less popular fandom on podcasts, but maybe we'll get to that in a future episode. The fandom we inherited from Dad is the smell of the lumber end of the Home Depot. Oh god, and are, sawdust are Bob and, and Norm Abram still alive? They are, right? Or not? He's uh <laughs> Normie baby is still alive. They stopped making the New Yankee workshop a few years ago. But how will I learn about trestle joints and stuff? Oh, you just, <laughs> or whatever that is. <laughs> you just have to wait for him to show up on this old house and hope to God he makes his own jig. I mean, his, his plaid shirts were on point, that's what I'm saying. Abs- absolutely. <laughs> uh, Scott, like that, that reminds me, um, my first theater film was actually The Little Mermaid for reasons. Um, but I, I did see Return of the Jedi on a big screen. It was the first show, movie that I saw at camp so it was like projected on a huge screen we were all together watching it so it had a lot of sort of theater value even though it was several years later um and i just i deeply deeply recall the scene of uh spoiler alert <laughs> 30 years ago um, <laughs> the, the emperor uh torturing luke and how and how scary it was because i think it was five when i saw this particular thing maybe seven um, but it, it stayed with me forever. It was amazing, and 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 I rem- remembered it and continued to watch it when I when I met my best friend and we we watched it repeatedly when I was ten. <laughs> it just it's half, it stays with you, man. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that's that's the sort of model of fandom that it really engenders, where there are these iconic images and iconic lines that you quote over and over and over again, and and these little bits of of the movies that stay with you for so long. Uh, as opposed to the prequels, where the little bits of the movies that have stuck with me have been, like, almost completely in the form of parody and derision. Yeah, I've, like, summarily forgotten the prequels, other than a vivid memory of how garbage the script to episode two is when Anakin makes some comment to Padme about how she's not like the sand because yes. she's smooth and not rough. She's what smooth. in the, the ever-living the, the, the crap is that? The sand is coarse and rough and it gets everywhere. That is oh the one God. line out of the entire prequel trilogy. That is the one line that is actually remembered is the line about how the sand and how it gets everywhere and how it's not rough. Or how it's she's so, not rough. It's such poor dialogue. It's like actually breathtaking. It's like reverse impressive. And it is not like, at all helped by being delivered by Hayden Christensen. Uh, I feel bad. He was in an impossible situation. Yeah, e- even, but yes. Even, you, you know, you, you can't tell anything from those prequels. Even the good actors sucked. Even like, I know. Natalie Portman. I, Natalie, yeah, Natalie is on point in almost every project I've ever seen except these. Yeah, these are terrible yeah, exactly. and it's not because and it's not because she was inexperienced she was very experienced at the time oh yeah, oh, yeah. she's been working yeah. since she was 11 
it's yep. significant work and, and it's just n- nothing can save the scripts they're so bad what's amazing <laughs> is it gets worse as it goes on if you look at samuel <laughs> jackson in those movies he's okay in phantom menace and he's okay in episode two and then episode three he's just as shitty as everyone else they like goes straight down in terms of acting quality. Yeah, by the time you get to episode three, Natalie Portman, like she spent years having to say lines like "Hold me" like you did on Naboo. Yeah, it's that's it's just really bad. It's like it's not even adequate pulp. Like it's just it's in its own class of not acceptable. Like I oh I'm so mad at him forever. Yeah, yeah, George Lucas, I mean. And and <laughs> well, uh, this this discussion nicely encapsulates why I became so much more apathetic about the Star Wars fandom because right. it was such a huge high in terms of interest and and quality with the original trilogy, and then such a cratering low. With the prequel mm-hmm. trilogy, that by the time that was over, I could not invest myself in this fandom as much as I did when I was five. Because what if their next thing that came out was as bad as Phantom Menace? Mm-hmm. Right. What yeah. if it was as bad as Phantom? Exactly. There, there's no way I could continue to be as invested in it as I was throughout the '80s and the first half of the '90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and then that basically formed the backbone of the entire thought process behind making episode seven to go back to an extent to the original trilogy in terms of story construction, in terms of shooting to the extent that you can do in a modern blockbuster, but especially in the marketing, to try like hell to give people the impression that we know the prequel sucked, we're not going to do that. George Lucas isn't here. George Lucas doesn't have a damn thing to do with anything that's going on. We've got Lawrence Kasdan back. You liked his movie, you know. Yeah, his we're, movie is great. Mm-hmm. We're 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 doing we're doing all the all these things to give it the feel that you want, the story construction that you want. They're back into the Joseph Campbell hero's journey as if that's the or text of Star Wars. Pretty much is. Well, the original I mean, trilogy, that, at least. A, that's an, I would say it's an action-adventure trope. Like, straight across. I don't think it's Star Wars-specific. No, it, it's not specifically Star Wars. I just, I just think that was such an influence on, on Lucas making the first movies. Yeah, it's not specifically Star Wars, but Star Wars hews so closely to it. And is so famous for hewing so closely to it. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of tired tropes in the hero's journey construction uh, Mm. that are extremely tired in action blockbusters. I mean, everything has to have a prophecy for the one or whatever. I mean, the, I mean, one of the worst examples is when they when they made that uh, Nicolas Cage movie of the Sorcerer's Apprentice, and and they <laughs> took the, which I actually did see, and they took the freaking Sorcerer's Apprentice and gave it a prophecy about the one who will arise from the people and be really great at magic and. Ugh. How did they make a feature film out of a short? story? Story though, okay. By putting all the most <laughs> cliched plot beats possible into it, and hiring uh, good actors to try to make it work. I mean, they had Nick Cage. They had um, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, Doc Ock from Spider Man Two. Oh, that guy. I forget his name. <laughs> I oh forget God. His name. Oh, the 
the, the three of us are hopeless. Oh, uh, the, the people listening to this are yelling at their at, at their devices. No, he was the guy. Wasn't he the guy who played uh, Diego Rivera in the Frida Kahlo movie too? That guy. What the hell's his name? Oh my! We we we. I am so ashamed. Ask right and now. you shall receive. I keep thinking of Joe Mantegna, but it's not. It's Alfred, Alfred Molina. Molina. Alfred Molina. God Almighty! How did I not remember? Oh my God! But yet, yes, yeah, he, he was uh, uh, in an auspicious turn, the villain in the Sorcerer's Apprentice movie, to try to make that thing work, but it was, oh god, it was bad. And like every other freaking sci-fi fantasy epic movie, it's, it's about the chosen one who has to rise up and do the stuff, which was an aspect of the prequel trilogy, of course, as well, because they had to wrap in a prophecy and the one to balance yeah, the force get, and all that I'm stuff that never really came together. Too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I Prophecy's a little cheap. Like I, I like it. I like it better when some rando person decides to do something big. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is something that I think the new Star Wars benefits from because they have all the hero's journey stuff. It's played straight, but it's interesting again. It it feels fresh again somehow. And thankfully, there isn't any prophecy yet that we know of. Because there's lots of backstory that's going to get filled in. But as the story is right now, Ray is this person who's been scraping along to survive, who is a good person, who decides to do good things. She decides to save the droid from getting captured by that junk dealer. She decides not to sell the droid to the other junk dealer just because she could really use the food. She makes the decision to do good things. There isn't anyone who swoops in and says, you're chosen and you have to do this and fulfill your role. You know, it's about people and people's choices. Finn's choices, too. He's, he's a person who sees you know, all the devastation in, in the attack in the first scene of the movie and makes a decision not to be a part of it. He's an individual making an individual decision to do better. And that that is a part of the movie that I think is really compelling. For me, a huge driver for Ray's decision-making is she's been so lonely for so long. We've seen her hundreds of tick marks, right, that she's been alone. Yeah. And she's obsessed with the old X-Wing pilot's helmet. Yeah. And I think... When she meets BB-8 and is, like, just thinking, like, she could clearly get serious cash money for him, but he just holds this, like, hint of possible break from routine, break from boredom, like, sparkle of... You know, he's he's compelling for all those reasons, and that starts the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's this inkling of uh, the call to adventure, to go back to the Exactly. Yes, the call to adventure. It's like it's 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 a pretty gentle one, and then then things get real real fast when we realize how hunted this droid is. Yeah, definitely. I do think it's a lot better when the person gets sucked in due to their own actions, due to their own choices, mm-hmm. rather than just like being plucked by some wise man who says you are the one. Exactly. Yeah, by by being plucked by some wise man who says you are the one. Let me do a blood test real quick. <laughs> Yeah. You could you could almost see it if you want to. You you, you know we love uh, inappropriate reevaluations. I love a redemptive reading. I love a good strong misreading. Let's go. You could see Ray's journey in Force Awakens as a criticism of the prequel trilogy. 
because what happens to Anakin? Anakin is just going on his own way. He's doing whatever he does for Watto or whatever. And all of a sudden, Qui-Gon swoops in from the outer galaxy and says, You! You are special. You are the chosen one. You will come with me and you will become a Jedi. And Anakin's just like, Okay? You could, you know... Yeah. Meanwhile, Rey is not plucked out of the sky by some wise man. Rey chooses to do things. Rey chooses to help BB-8. Rey chooses to escape with Finn. Rey wants to get involved in the Resistance somehow. You see how excited she is when she thinks that Finn is with the Resistance. She wants Mm -hmm. to be related to that somehow. It's not because some guy in a beard and a robe found her and said, you are special. No, it's her choices and her actions and what she chooses to do when faced with danger, when faced with peril, when faced with these situations. It's the choices she makes in these situations that force her onto the hero's journey. That's what makes yeah. a he- that's what makes a hero. Not because somebody plucks you up and says you are my new hero. What makes you a hero is that when faced with a critical situation where you have to choose a direction, you know, do I help this person or do I sell them out for 26 portions of food? Do I help this person or do I use them to shield myself from the monsters? You know, do Mm. I risk myself in this cause or do I go back to my remote desert planet and try to find scrap parts for the next 20 years? It's the choices you make in those situations that determine whether or not you're a hero. Yeah, uh, we saw the movie for a second time a couple of days ago to kind of refresh our memories before doing this show. I'm so jealous. Yep. And, and one of the <laughs> and things that I really noticed, uh, one of the things that really stood out to me was this shot when Ray is at the uh, uh, settlement before Finn shows up or she's scrubbing off her parts or whatever. And she looks mm-hmm. over at this old woman who's mm-hmm. like this mirror of her, like, if, if nobody's coming for you and nobody's going to help you, nobody's going to show kindness to you, you're going to be right here doing this exact same thing when you're an old woman still trying to make it in the desert. Yeah, can you hack this for another 50 years? Yeah, exactly. I was going to add on to what Scott was saying um, about what makes a hero, and can can we read Ray's arc as a criticism of the arc in, in the prequels? And I, th- I there's that for sure. The, the other thing that I see is what can happen if you are freed from the type of expectation that was placed on Anakin and also placed on... Uh, on Kylo Ren, nay Ben Solo, because because when you have your selection of choices, um, both Anakin and and Kylo Ren have a but what am I supposed to do choice that is clouding their instincts, and that I think that adds to the challenge level and also can explain how how potential heroes arc becomes an anti heroes arc because it's, yeah. it's too much. Yeah, I I think you could choose to interpret the prequel story as a criticism of that kind of plucking out because that's what gives Anakin his arrogance and his expectations that he's going to be this great Jedi Master and he's going to be this awesome Jedi and then when it doesn't happen, he's still a petulant little child as Kylo Ren is still a petulant Mm -hmm. little child. You can choose to interpret the prequels that way, but of course it's all incredibly incompetently done. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there was the intention, and then there was the sad mess that was actually delivered to us. V- very sad and very messy. But there is definitely that link to to Kylo Ren as someone who had expectations put on him, and someone who expects to be, I think, a lot better than he is at all of this stuff. Indeed. Yeah, Kylo Ren kind of sucks at all the Jedi stuff. He, he, he sucks at, like, the military commanding stuff that he tries to do. He sucks at the dark side stuff. He's, he's, he's not good at anything other than accessorizing, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we could talk about that. I have comments. Let's let's go. <laughs> I disagree with the statement that Kylo Ren is not good at anything. Um, <laughs> that I was intentionally provocative. <laughs> I actually found Kylo um, quite intimidating um, when we first see him. When we see the attack on the village that opens the film, seeing these stormtroopers being uh, not wanting to interact with him when you when. He, it seems like it's because he has a temper problem, um, and I see it as see it as an adult man's uh, temper problem. And so when when it's revealed that his character is more like thirty, I was continued to be frightened of him because because I I do read him as powerful even though he has these multiple challenges presented to him, particularly in the second half of the film to his power, like his confrontation with Ray especially. Um, <laughs> But I don't think that he is uh, not good at anything. And I also don't think he's not good at Force stuff. And uh, the reason... Well, okay. I'm going to pivot back to the Team Cape thing. Um, Please. So, yeah, to, conti- to continue on the Force thing. So I, I-, I was hanging out on Tumblr uh, after seeing it for the first time. Uh, because I prefer Tumblr to Reddit if I'm going to go in deep fandom. Oh, absolutely, um, absolutely. I'll be plugging my <laughs> Tumblr at the end of the show. Excellent. So... He has this confrontation with with Han on the bridge, and I actually thought he was going to bodily throw Han off the bridge. So I was surprised to see what actually happened. Um, <laughs> and he's he's wounded by Chewie. He's you know he's shot by the the crossbow. And what does he have to go do now? He has to go he has to go in the forest and deal with with Ray and Finn. So he he has this wound right, and he's bleeding in the snow. We see it's a serious wound. He's he's bleeding out of his outfit which is made of fancy whatever space yeah, he, gear he's bleeding, right, um, he's bleeding right through his enormous cummerbund right so yeah it's, it's, enormous it's, cummerbund it's, was it's, in this movie <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that joke i enjoyed it um, yeah so he's got this serious wound and we see him before he engages them in the dueling He's pounding the wound with his fist. You can see him messing with it. And we're like, is that an awesome first aid technique? I don't think so. And some interesting, introspective, nerdy Tumblr people were saying that it was a way to increase his feeling of pain, to get himself wow. into the kind of you know adrenaline-fueled headspace that he would need to be in to survive the fight. And to, that, to and really get the hate to flow through him? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Feel really the hate. Exactly. The Exactly. So I think his instinct to use what he's been taught by whatever the Gollum hologram guy is, um, to to use what he knows about the dark side in order to survive these fights. And, you know, of course, we'll never know because of the earthquake what was going to happen between Rey and and Kylo Ren in that fight. But he's, you know, he's wounded. He's in trouble when he starts these duels. 
And um, and I think he uses uh, the force, uh, whether you want to say it's the dark side or the light side of the force to survive the the dueling. But, but yeah, that that action of pounding the wound, I think, is very directed and very specific. And and I was impressed by it and, and terrified by it. And the other thing, while we're talking about if he's, is he not good at stuff, is he looks damn good in that costume and is an excellent costume. To me, it was a very difficult task to costume the villain because Darth Vader is so iconic. Like, yeah, you see absolutely. that weird triangle mask and you're like all right and and they did sort of a more dyson vacuum version of that um it actually still worked for me and i just like bad guys in capes anyway um the the team cape there's a team cape hashtag that happened for a hot minute and it's actually not not really about kylo ren originally it was about it was about this girl who live tweeted watching the ot for the first time and because of how awesome david prowse looks in the darth vader costume he assumes but or she assumes we're supposed to root for vader so she's like team cape and um anytime <laughs> vader does anything awesome she she was tweeting about it and saying team cape and i'm i'm just gonna go ahead and snag that to apply to kylo and how great he looks in his cape because that's some serious cape action i love the fabrication of it um the huge hood like i don't know it just it really worked for me it really worked for me so yeah he looks good and he knows how to use the dark side of the force man i'm 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 into kylo as a character uh, while while you're mentioning the the duel at the end, another thing that really stood out to me uh, seeing the movie again after reading a lot of things in the blessed Tumblr fandom. I love Tumblr fandom because they're mm-hmm. so invested in character psychology and really deepening the characters, like with the aid of novelizations or whatever else, or just entirely on your own. I, I love mm-hmm. that sort of deep penetrating dive that people take. But one of the things people, for real. <laughs> one of the things that people talk about, I think it comes from the novelization, is that when Ray starts to overcome Kylo in the duel, it's when she starts feeling the hate. It's it's when she starts like not just defending herself but actually getting mad. Because, mm-hmm. you know, by now she's actually like gotten a friend for the first time in her life and found something of a community for the first time ever in her life. And in defending that, she starts to tap into that and she starts to feel maybe a little bit of the dark side. That's difficult to go on just from her performance, but... Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think you can get that out of the movie. Ju- uh, with, with, the back, with the background stuff and seeing people talk about the novel and all that, I saw that in her performance, though. I, yeah, I think it's a. I, I think you can get that, and I think it it reminds us of of Yoda telling us anger leads to hate because she's clear she's clearly angry, um, and angry isn't a, anger is not dark in and of itself. Um, right. Ex- exa- tra- exactly. The anger is a tool. Exactly. Exactly. The main problem I have with Kylo Ren as Dark Side Master is hmm. that he's bested twice by somebody who has literally known she has Force ability for about ten minutes. <laughs> I mean, first when he he tries to use the Force to read her mind, and she winds up using the Force to read his mind instead. When he is supposed to be this, maybe not a master at this point, but this person who is very heavily invested into the Dark Side of the Force... And he has this whole persona, and he's undergone training, and he was training with Luke before he turned to the dark side, so you'd think he'd have some Force abilities. And yet, this woman, who just found out she has Force abilities like 10 or 15 minutes ago, not only blocks his attempt, but turns it around and is able to read him. And then later, the first time she ever picks up a lightsaber, she defeats him. 
She's yeah, but she's been defending herself with that staff of hers for a while. She knows how to use like an elongated weapon. Uh, yeah, that's well, you, true. You, the the staff fighting is relevant. Well, you see that when she's first fighting, because if you, if you look at the the duel that they have, mm-hmm. he mostly gets the best of her. He backs her up against that cliff. He's driving her backwards the whole time. He pretty much gets the best of her. She holds her own to an extent, but he pretty much has the advantage until he stops and reminds her to use the force. No, see, see, that's the thing. That that's and it right as, there. As soon as she starts it. tapping into the force, she just beats him down in like two minutes. Well, see, I read that entire thing. Um... So like he he what remind me Oscar Isaac's character's name I, the Poe po, yeah so you know we see the Poe interrogation and you know Poe is full of sass and it seems like he's fully intending to resist the interrogation and Kylo gets it out of him first you know w- w- it cuts away but like the next scene he has the information yeah, yeah that's, I think that's, he- that's that's definitely something the movie does. In, the, yeah. in that first act to show you how good Kylo is uh, in some oh, ways. There's there's the part right in the first scene where he stops the laser bolt in the air yeah. and then just kind of lets it hang there until he gets bored. Yeah. When he encounters Rey, I, I, get, I get the distinct feeling that nobody has resisted either his punishments or his mind readings or his interrogations for a long time, maybe years. Yeah. And then this yeah. situation happens with Rey... And I think he's fascinated. That, like, that's the key thing, Scott, that you started to touch on with the duel. He doesn't want to kill her. She's fascinating. He doesn't want to kill her. Well, he, he wants said, to see what they're. Yeah. It's, yeah. Cer- it's, certainly, it's certainly a valid interpretation if you want to say that it's entirely possible that since he slaughtered all the other Jedi students, he hasn't encountered another Force user other than maybe this Snoke person, who I'm assuming is a Force right. user, since he says he's going to train Kylo. But right. he may not have encountered another Force user for however long it's been since that happened, months, right. years, however long. So the fact that he encounters this person and can, that she can use the Force, it would obviously attract his interest and... Although, again, that's just sort of another parallel that they do from the original trilogy, where, oh no, he doesn't want to kill her, he wants to train her as his new apprentice, just like Vader and Luke. Yeah. And I I think that... that, Sorry, go ahead, Glenn. Oh no, I I was just going to interject that I'm just glad nobody wound up cutting anyone's arm off. No, that's been done. (laughs) That happens in the second movie. Yeah, that's next movie, I guess. (laughs) Actually, yeah, that, that would be the traditional place to include a maiming. Would be the second movie of the mini trilogy, and 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 of, and of course the big familial revelation right after someone's arm gets yeah. cut off. You know, no, Ray, I am your cousin or something. Oh God, that's I, yeah, see, I see, really see. hope they don't do that. Like, to Ray turns out to be Luke's kid or a descendant of Obi Wan Kenobi or something like that. Well, I mean, she's she's going to be someone because somebody put her on that planet with Anker Plutt. You know, in the flashback and everything. That was part of the movie. I might have said this in the other, in the last podcast we did, but that part of the movie, I kind of tuned out a little. There's all the speculation about who is Rey, where does she fit in the family, because she's probably going to somewhere, and all the speculation about who is Snoke. Is Snoke this, you know, character from the prequels or whatever? I have no idea about Snoke. That's a big question mark for me. 
Yeah, everyone's theory is that he's Darth Plagueis or something. Yeah, I don't know who that is. Uh, <laughs> Darth Plagueis was like hundreds of years earlier. That Darth Darth Plagueis was was the uh, Sith Lord that Palpatine told Anakin about in the opera in Episode Three. Sure. Yeah, I thought he lived hundreds of years before Episode Three. I thought the implication was that he was Palpatine's apprentice, uh, master, but master maybe. Well, I've seen Episode Three once in two thousand five, so I might not be remembering all the details. Yeah, li- like I said, that's For real. A, like I said, that's an aspect of the movie I wasn't all that interested in because I was so swept up with. A lot of the other aspects of it, you know, the the new characters and and the story and the aesthetics of it, which we're we're going to get to, uh, e- uh, even past Team Cape. Um, Elena, <laughs> Elena, what were you saying before I so rudely interrupted? Oh, I was just gonna say, like, I'm not like if you go, if you hang out on Tumblr, like, t- there's there's a Kylo Ren situation happening on Tumblr. There's several of them actually. Yes. Um, you know, deep deep wonderings about all the you know there's emo readings of him there's gay readings of him there's endless ship readings for him and that's all fine and i'm not i'm not going to stand for any for any one of those in particular but i am like a kylo ren apologist when it comes to character development and what i mean by that is so he's the son of Han Solo and Leia Organa. So like he is known in like he's you know he's like friggin' Northwest. Like he's a he's a famous child. Like, <laughs> a, a child. Um, Continue. You know? Thank you. Yes. So it's difficult for famous children to grow up normally. We've seen that in our own society a lot. And he's he's clearly born force gifted, right? Like, because in the Star Wars world, you're born force sensitive or not. Is that is that how it works? I, I mean, I don't I don't actually know this detail, but I, it seems I, like I people. Believe, are I believe so. I, I don't think it's an acquired yeah. trait. So then there's all this, you know. There there's a lot of focus on him. There's his enrollment into Luke's Jedi school, whatever whatever was going on there. And then there's what, however, he became connected to his grandfather and what happened to him, and however, Snoke, whatever. It's it's clear when we meet him now in the story that he is feeling split. He's feeling ambiguity about everything, about all his choices, past and present. Every move he makes, he's trying to resolve the split, and he can't resolve it. And Snoke is working with him on this, and, and like you know, what steps do you need to take to realize your power fully? Like, it's dark or light, you can't have both. He keeps trying to resolve it. He's going to kill his father, and it's all going to be clear. And he kills Han, and it's freaking not clear. It's not settled. He doesn't feel it. He needs to go chase the girl that represents Force failure because he has that failed interrogation with her. And in the fight with her, he's, he still is craving resolution. He's like, all right, well, you know, this is happening now. And I want to I, I, I teach this girl. And instead of her dropping her weapon and be like, where do I sign for like Kylo Ren's school of force development, the fight continues. The feelings that he has of being split between the attraction of the dark and the attraction of the light will not resolve. And because of that, I find him fascinating. And I'm so here for the continuation of his story in episodes eight and nine. Because he keeps trying to make moves to get solidity and it will not happen for him and i think that that is awesome writing i'm so into that and the one who's paying the highest price is kylo ren as a character like the pain keeps coming <laughs> i think that's a really, yeah i think that's a really good in, in interpretation of his character and what his motivations are 
The yeah. one the one quibble I have with that is if it eventually <laughs> leads to like the Kylo Ren redemption they seem to be setting up. In... They may very well be doing that. Yes. <laughs> I'm just I'm not forgiving enough a person to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're if you're having emo angst over your place in the universe, that's fine. But when you slaughter all of your classmates, I'm not here for your redemption story. Just hugging your mom doesn't make that all better for me. You know what? There there is there is a question that I think is valid in in lots of these stories, and it was a big th- uh, discussion around an episode of Doctor Who this year, which I won't go into because you haven't seen this season yet. Yeah, I gotta watch that someday. But there there is a valid discussion to be had around who exactly is qualified to forgive when uh-huh. when there are crimes that are that great as, you know, actively, I don't know, about helping to lead the First Order, but being kind of a bigwig in an organization that destroys planets <laughs> and, and ambushes villages and all that. But I think also that if you're trying to tell a story about forging a just society... Mm. There has to be forgiveness, there has to be redemption, there have to be stories where terrible war criminals can redeem themselves. That ha- that has to be possible, because it has to be possible in the real world, too. Does it have to be? Yes. How does a terrible war criminal redeem themselves? Step one is to stop. <laughs> um, uh-huh. which, which Kylo hasn't exactly gotten to yet. No, but Anakin, Anakin did in the OT, and we did forgive him. Exactly, that's the redemption story in Return of the Jedi, that this vicious, horrible war criminal, Darth Vader, I guess one way you could describe him, turns against his master and, and redeems himself. So, it, you know, once Kylo Ren takes uh, leader Snoke and tosses him down a bottomless pit and goes and hugs his mommy, you know, where, where's he going to be then? There are two important aspects to the Darth Vader redemption. A, he takes out the entire empire by killing the emperor. Well, we, he, we see in this movie that he really hasn't. And B, he dies. True. Right. If you sacrifice your own life, then you're in a little better position to be forgiven for all the other lives you've taken. It is, it is. If you just say, oh, you know what? I was wrong to kill all those people. I'm sorry. Come hug me. I'm less inclined to forgive than if you're, like, spurting up blood from your shattered inside saying, Ugh, I'm so sorry for all those people I killed. But now I've done all I can to redeem myself. I actually think a possible story arc for this is that Kylo Ren will be captured and he'll be a POW to the resistance. And I think what what might be in conflict is that if it was anybody else, Leia uh, would need to order this person executed, but it's going to be her kid. Yeah, that is definitely a uh, rich source of conflict. Yeah. Uh, and also, like, and also, we're all we're all thinking it's hilarious that Luke is like in isolation on this island. But if you, like, for me, and and this might be that I am very recently postpartum to two small children, but, like, what I see is the absolute horror of your family member taking lives. Like, the horror of that. Like, it's it's horrifying. It's his nephew. And the the other students uh, are his, you know, the, the force is a religion. Like, they're his spiritual children. 
Yeah, not, like, not only is Kylo his responsibility and his student and his nephew, but all of the people Kylo killed were also his responsibility. Exactly. Like, if you fail to that degree... I can I can see I can see I can see living in isolation like that. If you fail to that degree, uh, which Obi Wan and Yoda also did right before going into hiding, yeah, Mm -hmm. uh, you know maybe there's an aspect of that again going into character psychology in a way that the original movies didn't really, but we do now because this is what we do with movies and characters now. But but thinking about the experience of trying to pick up the mantle of these people who failed so hard. The Empire ruled the galaxy because they failed so bad. Now Luke has failed in almost the exact same way. So there's definitely a lot of trauma that has to come from that. And people do weird things. Yeah, like people... Well, the whole Skywalker clan doesn't exactly react well to trauma. Leia does okay. Really? Well, she's the one. Oh, who, she does. She, she's the one who manages to like do stuff. There's well, a whole meme about that, Scott. It, it, you can, exa- you can exactly. Talk to the internet about exactly. it. There's there's a whole again in Tumblr fandom and, and stuff. There's this great great meme. You know, Leia loses her adoptive parents, her real parents, her entire home planet, everything, and she's not tempted to the dark side. These Skywalker men is weak as hell. Yeah, Leia is possibly the most well-adjusted of the clan, but even she admits during that conversation with Han Solo. She says, you know, after after Kylo went dark, I retreated into the only thing I've ever been any good at, which is leading a mm-hmm. ragtag resistance cell. She's like U.S. Grant. She's no good at anything but war. Mm-hmm. Same thing. I mean, it's it's too much. It's too much. The idea that my son was a murderer that he had no self-possession that he heard these messages and was was unable to resist them. that he became something that I didn't recognize. Uh, it, it really stabs me in the feels. And, it, and I understand again, like uh, underscoring why Luke is not around right now. Like yeah. depending on how long ago this incident was, but I get the, I get the feeling it was actually maybe about 10 years ago. Um, so probably, so, probably. Might have been, yeah. that's that's and somebody... so and so that makes Kylo like twenty, like he's a young man, yeah, to be doing somewhere that. In, in his twenties, I think. And of course, Anakin did something very similar, but he was of similar age. Like he's his character's like seventeen or eighteen in in Episode Two, I think. I, I can't actually remember. That's fine. <laughs> I think we really need to know a lot more about exactly just what the hell happened. You know, who, right. who is Snoke? Where did he come from? How did he get hooked up with Kylo Ren? How did he seduce Kylo Ren to his side? What exactly all went on there? We need to know a lot more before we can really evaluate any of that. God, wasn't that montage gorgeous, though? When Rey touches the lightsaber? That was everything. I loved that piece of editing. Because it was a, it was upsetting. It was moody. It was full of all these sound cues. Like it was it was very disorienting. And when when Ray is like f that, I'm never touching the lightsaber again. Like usually, <laughs> you totally usually understand I, her in that moment. I do. I do understand her. I'm like I I would not want to go to there again either. Like that was not okay. Um, whatever I was seeing, and it and it it seems it seems like it's a mixture of memory of both her and the lightsaber itself. 
Like there's there's all this there's a lot of crap going on when she touches that lightsaber, including what what many people are reading as 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 a set piece from Kylo Ren's murder of the Jedi. Yeah, um, there's there's a shot standing there, there with these bullets yeah, raining yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a shot of him with the Knights of Ren or something massacring the uh, the Jedi, and and again thinking about Luke's running away in his isolation. There are tons of parallels between Luke and Rey in this movie, not only in her story mirroring his story in Star Wars, but also they're both isolated. And for Luke, the the isolation is born of the pain he felt after the massacre of his Jedi. For Rey, her isolation at the beginning of the movie was forced on her, and it's the only thing she's known, and it's something she wants to break out of, but she's a little hesitant to break out of it. Um, well, she doesn't... Does she want to break out of it, or is she hoping someone will come and break her out of it? She... she's, I think she's in conflict about that. I think she's yeah. bored out of her mind, but she cannot bear the idea that she would miss the chance to see her I people mean, I again. I mean, she's, yeah, she's, exactly. a, she's a dreamer. She watches, she watches a ship launch and puts on her X-Wing helmet and, and dreams about being anywhere but here, about being someplace where, where she's not in such deep privation. At the same time, when Finn wants to escape, the first thing she says is, I need to go back. Well, because she has this idea that someone's going to come for her. She has an idea that a bearded man with a robe is going to fly out of the sky and say, you. <laughs> but No, I don't, I don't think that's what she's waiting for at all. Well, I, I, well, I, not I, the, just, not I just mean that. Not specifically a bearded man in a robe, but she's waiting, she's waiting, I guess, for her parents to come back. For her someone. family. Somebody, yeah. But her... She didn't want to miss her ride. It's like, it's like when you're at the bus stop and the bus hasn't come. Well, it's, and it's, you have your yeah, and you need you have your needs. At some point, you just have to determine. Well, the bus isn't coming. It's up to me, and just huff it. But exactly, and and um, I forget the name of the character, but Lupita and Goyo's character, uh, Maz. Maz, yeah. When when she kind of kicks Ray out of her denial, because it seems it seems clear that the that it's that it's a product of long denial that she's still on freaking Jakku waiting for her ride. When and Maz finally kicks her out of it, and she she's just fresh off of this bender that the lightsaber took her on. Um, it's a, it's upsetting, but I think she gets it. The script presents it like like her people are dead. I think the real problem is that the people who left her think that she is dead. I think her people are still alive and that they didn't come back because they think that that she is dead. For quite, reasons, quite possibly. <laughs> I, I expect we're going to get a lot more um, about that in in the coming movies. But yes. uh, on that note, uh, we are going to pause for a quick break and hear the ads for all the other podcasts on the Place to Be Podcast Network, the award-winning Place to Be Nation Podcast Network. And we will be right back in just two and one-half minutes. We will catch you then. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. 
What's up, everybody? This is Kevin Kelly. Make sure you check out every episode of The Kevin Kelly Show right here on the Place to Be Nation. PlaceToBeNation.com, The Kevin Kelly Show. Every episode is a winner. At least we hope. Place to Be Nation's Justin Rosero here. In addition to The Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes at PlaceToBeNation.com. You can check out Scott Criscolo and me on The Mothership, The Place to Be Podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with main event, Mission Indie Possible, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor Super Shows. And relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. We got sports covered too with the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott... Dr. G, Cowboy and Cowboy Sr., the Kings of Sport, led by Live Audio Wrestling's godfather Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast and the TJ McClune Show. PTBN tackles pop culture and irreverence with Richard and the Mailman, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. And if you like a hybrid of all of this in list form, check out Jordan Duncan's Rank and File. All of these shows are available on PlaceToBeNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' blog of doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceToBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro wrestling only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network, where you'll find a ton of in depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's One Two Punch of Exile on Bad Street, and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave. Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Slees. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. Welcome back. I am Glenn with Scott and Alana, and we are still talking about Star Wars. Uh, Alana, I think there was another point you wanted to make about the duel, right? Yeah, so there's been some critique about Kylo's lightsaber, because it has this cross piece that is also active. And whether or not that is good weapon design, like what at all is going on with his with that situation... Like, it's a very arresting visual that he has this lightsaber that has a cross piece. Um, but what I wanted to say about the duel, because people are all up in arms about how could there ever be a Kylo v. Ray that is meaningful. Like, you know, Adam Driver is six foot three. Like, he's a tall guy. He's really tall, really. And uh, and Daisy is normal woman height, possibly small, like maybe 5'4 or 5'3. So how can there be a meaningful 
duel. And to me, the duel is amazing. And there, there's a couple things going on with that. They give adequate preparation for Ray to be very physical because she's been scavenging the ships and... You know, essentially, she's been rock climbing, which is one of the most physically taxing things that you can do. Yeah, she has she, been living rough. Yeah, and she she's been defending her stuff with her staff, which uh, which Glenn made mention of before. There's actually a lot of crossover between staff fighting and fighting with a large sword, essentially. And I'm saying this is an ex fencer, so I have some ex fencing expertise to bring to bear on the situation. But the other reason why the duel is awesome is um, Kylo uses his huge lightsaber with the cross piece as a, a single wield with one hand um and finn and ray both use a two-handed stance with their lightsaber so kylo has this enormous reach because the reason you would single wield such a huge weapon is for reach reasons like you can you extend it with one hand you have your entire arm coming out so he has this huge reach but the two-handed stance gives you power like, that's the reason that you would assume a two-handed stance is, is for power reasons. So, Ray is using her... She's she's much shorter, which is a huge problem in fencing, except that she's, one, not wounded, and two, she's assuming this two-handed stance. So, when Kylo backs her up against the cliff, we're all wondering, why why can't he just push it? And and, and, and they, they've established it through swordsman for so through swordsmanship and through backstory i feel like they covered their bases for why the duel is able to look like that and i think it looks amazing so i just wanted to kind of thumb my nose at the people who are hating on this duel because i think it's amazing it looks great it's paced well there's a lot of really great fight choreography in it um the effects people are all over it the lightsabers look wonderful they sound great like, it's just it, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful piece so Everyone who doesn't like the duel can suck it. All right, I'm done talking about the duel. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Thank, thank you. That, that, was, that was very insightful. I had not heard that criticism of the duel, and my first reaction was, what the fuck is wrong with people? People are weird. There are lots of criticisms of the movie that lead you to think, what the fuck but, is wrong with people? But I mean, there is so much more that goes, not just a lightsaber fight, but any kind of fight. There's so much more that goes into it than merely what size are the competitors. Especially when they're using the Force. Especially when they're using the Force. Even aside from, from disparate skill levels, which you'd think he would also have the advantage there since she hasn't been trained, but we already covered that topic, but you have disparate skill levels, you have disparate innate ability, you have maybe different athletic abilities. If, you know, she's been rock climbing and rappelling her whole life and yep. he's been like sitting talking to a mask, maybe he's not in that great <laughs> shape. You know? <laughs> Plus, they're using the force to help themselves fight! Why on earth would the relative height of the two competitors be a determinative factor? I, I do not understand that criticism whatsoever. I mean, to be fair, in fencing bouts without the force, where both people are <laughs> See, how many single wielding have... their weapons, height does make a difference. See, how many fencing <laughs> bouts have you been in with or without the force? Can you give us a comparison there? <laughs> I can't say I've ever personally used the force during a fencing bout. I wish I could have, though. That would have been wicked. I mean, considering we've already seen Yoda fighting, 
I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure I'm pretty sure Daisy Ridley doesn't have a worse height disadvantage than Yoda. Yeah, see the people that, complaining mm-hmm. about that are total fake geek boys who never paid attention to the fact that <laughs> size matters not, you stupid bastards. Yeah, oh my god, her. size matters not. Holy crap. Judge her by That's her beautiful. size, do you? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Okay, but for real, we can abandon this topic and move on. I just had to get it out there about the wielding. Yes, well, that—that that is yet another reason. Of, I'm very glad to have you with us tonight. <laughs> uh, so, one of the things that I really wanted to talk about with this movie, take, taking a hard turn, is the uh, general aesthetics of the piece. Now, th- this was something else that was an aspect of the campaign to convince people that Star Wars is back just like it used to be. Because one of the things that was really driven home in the Star Wars trilogy was that this world, speaking in general and not about individual planets, obviously, but the milieu that the movie takes place in (laughs) is old. It is broken down. It is not a golden age of prosperity and progress. There are people eking out lives in this desert place. There are people huddled in the blizzard planet. Their lives, their environments aren't pretty. And a big thing about the aesthetics of the prequels is that everything was pretty and shiny and new. And again, that's something that you can read if you really choose to as a genuine engagement with the story, but again, it's ham-fisted and totally horribly done. You can say that, you know, the Republic as it is in the prequels is at the very end of a golden age of prosperity and progress for some, although (laughs) maybe that's the uh, 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 sort of class awareness coming in where the prequels aren't too concerned about the Untermension, at least after they break Anakin out of slavery. But that's yeah. but again that's like every Anakin's experience with slavery doesn't seem to be too horrible either. Ex- exactly. That that's again that that sort of characterization that I attribute to Tumblr fandom, although maybe that's reductive, that really concentrates on uh I don't want to say melodramatic, maybe I should just say dramatic aspects of characters' backgrounds, the pathos of it. You know, the the pathos of Anakin as as a former slave who has the mentality that you're only worth what you can be used for, and then he's put in the Jedi, and how does he respond to that? Which is fascinating, and can be a fascinating basis of a story, but is not the basis of the story of the prequels in the least. Well, Mm -hmm. it's along the lines of our deliberate misinterpretation, because it's more interesting than what's actually there. Exactly. If you really want to try to make a redemptive reading, which... Until there was another good Star Wars movie, I never had any interest in redeeming the prequels. Because I was just content to say, yeah, they sucked, I'm not a fan anymore, bye. I still have no interest. I'm still very content to say, okay, yeah, they suck, they're not really part of anything I'm interested in. I'm not, uh, okay, I'm not talking about... I'm with you there, Scott. (laughs) I'm not talking about redeeming them in the sense of coming to like the movies, because there are these things you can read into them. I'm talking about plucking whatever little bits you can make not terrible. I'm perfectly content to lop off the prequels and let them fall into the trash bin and just not even consider them as a part of the Star Wars I enjoy. That that is that is entirely fair. But again, I'm just contra- contrasting the the aesthetic of it. You know, all all the sleek gleaming shiny CGI stuff mm. with 
the Force Awakens, which is back in the sand. It is everywhere. And and the dirt and the grit. How much of that change in aesthetic is deliberate? I'm sure it's partly deliberate, but how much of it is just due to advances in CGI? Because some, some you of really is, couldn't yeah. make a CGI dirty, gritty thing in 1999. CGI in 1999 was shiny and smooth and perfect. It was a deliberate decision to make Queen Amidala's ship mirror-surfaced. It was a deliberate decision to make all the sets clean and pretty. Those were decisions that were made. That wasn't just technological limitations. Well, they were made by George Lucas, who... Who's Like, as a filmmaker, is obsessed with the state of the art. And his own sense of art is corrupted by his fixation on the state of the art. Because he used CGI because it was cool and not because it served his story. And it's all over the prequels. That that, that decision-making and what it did to the look of the films is all over the place. There was that scene in Attack of the Clones where he was shooting in digital video for the first time. And right. he took digital video of, like, the Sand People's campfires and then blew them up by, like, 800% before mm-hmm. putting them into the scene. And so they all look sort of pixelated. Because you can't do that. But he's just like, oh, I'm just going to do it because I have this digital video so it's more perfect than real film. And so I can blow it up to 800 or 1200%. That exact thing. Well, so- yeah, also, <laughs> also he had this digital video which is forever locked in the bitrate that they had in 2001 when they were filming the movie, as opposed to film grain, which can always be uh, film stock, which can always be rescanned at higher resolutions. <laughs> so that, that is forever locked in place, except for whatever CG adjustments they made for the Blu-ray. I don't even know. I mean, I'm not saying but, Phantom Menace would have been gritty and dirty and lived in had he still been stuck with physical effects, but I definitely think that how shiny and perfect everything is is affected by his deliberate choice to go CGI on everything. It's affected by yes. his deliberate choice. To an extent, it's also affected by the... Uh, mechanics of the story i mean in the phantom menace you are in the courts of queens and kings and in the senate of the grand republic i mean those aren't environments that are going to be dirty but that's another contrast to the force awakens which in large part does not take place in the center of power it just straight up takes place largely outside just straight up like it's outside it's in nature for what it's worth other, uh, like uh, there, there's uh, you know significant stuff taking place on on the Millennium Falcon and on the Star Killer base, but like well, a lot of stuff is taking place outside. Well, Star Wars <laughs> has always kind of done that, where they've mm-hmm. had the space battle part, but they've always also had a land battle. Not I guess right. not at the end of New Hope, but in Empire with the land speeders on Hoth, and in Jedi with the forest battle, and with the battle on yeah. Naboo, and the fight in the arena. They've always had a it's like space and sci-fi and laser blasters and starfighters, but they've always had a land battle on a planet. Yeah, except for except for Star Wars, yeah, but that was much more tightly focused. Yeah. 
a small budget will do that. See, that is my PS to George Lucas. When he had no budget, his film was really good. A New Hope is excellent. When, when, when he, he had all the budget in the world ever, he used all of it on effects and none of it on script doctors. When, when, and he really should have hired a bunch. When, when, when he had no budget and a commitment to a studio and his now ex-wife editing his scripts. Oh, I mean, no dis, no disrespect. Like, I don't mean this at all to be disrespectful oh, about George Lucas no, no. as a world builder. The man just cannot write a script, and that's that's a fact. Well, by <laughs> the time the late '90s came around, he was no longer really interested in story. He wasn't really interested in characters, and he was ab- he had absolutely no interest in actors. Yeah, he you was know. like he was kind of like John Woo, except for sci-fi. That is interesting. I don't know enough about John Woo. Could you tease out that comparison a little? There's this thing where it's an incredibly slick visual with like effects that have never been seen before, but the story is garbage. That was the point I was trying to make. So, like for episode seven, like is it a good aesthetics callback to the OT? I think it totally is. And I just, I also wanted to just shout out to J.J. Abrams for making that gorgeous set piece in the snow. The snow looks so good. It looks amazing. Like Scott was saying, like in the previous podcast where you guys were talking about the film a bit, is Jakku just another Tatooine? Like, is the whatever's going on with Starkiller Base and that planet, like, is that just another Hoth? And like, I don't think they're intrinsic to the story, essentially. I think that it's because the desert and the snow are interesting to photograph. And I think JJ knows that. So, like, when we see these things, we are called into the OT because there were significant set pieces in the desert and in the snow in the, in the OT. But, it, but like, they're just beautiful to look at. Like, the landscapes that you can get in a desert and in a snow situation are great. And adding the trees to it just makes it this fascinating Hoth slash Endor mashup that really works for me. I was really into it. Well, there's also a certain amount of story sense. Because if you're, yes. if you're introducing this character who has to scrape by by scavenging and trade in everything for these little meal pellets or whatever, mm-hmm. you can't do that in a lush forest. Because she wouldn't trade her valuables for meal pellets. She'd just go, you know, hunt down a fox or something. So you have to be in an austere, barren environment like a desert in order for that character background to work. That's true. Another part of the aesthetics of the movie that I think did really well was the uh, costuming and the wardrobing. And that is something else that I've seen extensive analysis online of how the wardrobe... Uh, reflects characters and the ways in which it's used to convey character. Obviously, there's Finn literally stripping the Stormtrooper uniform off of himself as he goes through... And replacing it with Poe's jacket. And replacing it with Poe's jacket... Uh, in in something of a, a of an unintentional purification ritual as he journeys through the desert, uh, mm. you know, stripping off his 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 old life piece by piece, uh, in a way that if you want to read into his psychology, you know, if if there's all this stormtrooper training, that's something else that he would have to strip off. But there's also Ray's costuming, which there's a pretty extensive analysis by the uh, costume director for the movie about every piece of Ray's outfit when we meet her, uh, reflecting part of her life or part of her personality or just her 
basic practicality out of, out of necessity. The uh, wrap on her head is a long-sleeved shirt that she just wrapped up in case she needs it. You know, if she's in the desert at night or something like that. Her mask is made out of a set of stormtrooper eyes that she found scavenging somewhere. Every bit of it is something that she found scavenging somewhere or made, or maybe a couple things she made trades for, but every part of it is something that plays into her personality and her backstory. And I think that is an underrated aspect of movie making, the subtleties mm -hmm. that go into really reflecting a character through their outfit and maybe giving subliminal, almost, uh, messages to the audience about what that is conveying. Uh, Scott, there was something else, uh, in contrast, that Ray's costume conveyed to you. Well, this, this is just something that jumps out at me because this is one of those things I notice. One of the things I often point out when watching professional wrestling is I point out when people seem to be wearing sleeves but no shirt. A lot, a lot of women wrestlers seem to do this where they'll wear like a bikini top but also have sleeves that are in no way attached to that top. And male wrestlers will often do it where they'll wear sleeves and no shirt. And the only other people I know who do this are football players who wear sleeves that are in no way attached to their jerseys. And Ray does this throughout the film, which I just sort of assumed it's because she's scavenging for clothing parts. And so she's wearing whatever she can get. But throughout the film, she wears sleeves that are in no way attached to her shirt. Except at the end of the movie, when she finally gets a change of clothes, before they go out, before her and Chewie go out on the mission to find Luke, she finally gets a change of clothes from the Resistance base. And even in her new clothes, she still has sleeves that are not attached to her shirt. I think there's two things going on. The covering of the arm is skin protection. And if you're fighting, like you had mentioned that wrestlers and football players do it, it's to protect skin from being grabbed. It's to protect pinching of the bicep. Like, there's all that kind of crap going on. But it it allows ultimate freedom of movement in the shoulder because it's in no way constricted uh, if it's not even attached. Like, like, I don't know if you guys have been in a shirt that's too small, but, like, that feeling of pulling across your shoulders, the wrist and the the whole sleeve connecting across the back, like, if it doesn't fit you properly, you feel the pulling. Um, and if you don't, if you can, you know, you get all the all the benefits of, ha of your s protected skin and you don't have to pay anything in restricted movement if you are using asleep with that's not connected to your shirt <laughs> well it just jumps out at me because i had literally never seen it before until i started seeing it on 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 wrestlers i have some things that just jump out at me because i found them weird the first time i saw them and so every time i see them they jump out at me and that gives the, her a look too that's that that's the thing i noticed particularly at the end of the movie where she gets a whole new outfit at the resistance base she once again is in that same style it also might be because the filmmakers are geniuses and they know that all the cosplayers, like if you get yourself three buns and some sleeves, you can be a Ray. <laughs> like, <laughs> because it's part of her look. Like she keeps it throughout the story till the very end, as you mentioned. And it's just, it's, it's very unique to her, including her hairstyle. But like they gave Leia an iconic hairstyle too in yeah, the OC. Yeah, <laughs> and Padme actually, while we're at it, her ceremonial hair was very distinctive. Yeah, definitely. And, and I've already seen lots of uh, pictures 
you know, people sharing cute pictures of little girls dressed as Ray, and it's just heartwarming. <laughs> Representation, baby. Exactly. That was another point I wanted to get to, was the really, for a Star Wars movie, it's an incredible level of representation. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. the, the new hero of the movie is a woman, obviously, and that's been almost universally embraced. It is indeed the almost that kind of gets to you a little, but <laughs> uh, I mean... Well, it, if I remember correctly, this movie has more women in speaking roles than the entire original trilogy. Well, sure, it has two. It was three, because it wasn't, wasn't one of the... <laughs> oh, there's like, Maz. Okay, there's Maz. Wasn't one of the technicians in the First Order base when they were getting ready to fire the weapon? One of the technicians said, you know, 30 minutes, sir. I think one of them yeah, was a woman. Yeah, uh, it was Captain Phasma. So there is double the number yeah. of women in speaking roles in this movie than there are in the entire original trilogy. Plus, yeah, plus Leia, plus Ray. Exactly. I mean, as much as you want to count four speaking women as an advance, it is double the original trilogy. I mean, do you, are you guys aware of the Bechdel test? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so this film passes, and not, and not a lot of sci-fi does. I don't believe any other Star Wars movie ever did. Not Probably we, not. Not with oh, two no, speaking roles. No, I think possibly a couple of the prequels might have, because Padme had her, like, uh, handmaidens and courtiers and such. Yeah, but did they yeah, actually the show other part speaking of the, to each other? And they have to be talking not about a dude, like, and is she ever not hand-wringing about Anakin? Well, there, yeah, there, was like... the, there was the one who got <laughs> blowed up at the beginning of Attack of the Clones, and I think she, like, tried to comfort her as she died. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think I've seen people talking about that a little bit, that technically there are a couple of passes there. Yeah, representation. And you were saying, like, almost universally acclaimed, and that is uh, what I want to say to the podcast audience, is if you're bored and you want to engage in some internet yelling, please hashtag Hasbro that it is not cool to leave Ray out of the merchandising for this film. It is 100% not not, cool. not Not entirely, but there is... She's the main character! Exactly, yeah. Scott. Yes. I love your outrage. Yes, that's, that's <laughs> a very good point that needs to be made to toy manufacturers it's it's black widow all over again how do you make an action figure line for this movie and not inc- she's the jedi uh-huh yes exactly there's, so there's the movie is scott and anyone else who's pissed off she's the one in whom the force awakens <laughs> so worth it <laughs> Yeah, so please let Hasbro know that they are not on it for overlooking the star of their picture because she's a woman. Yes, not they, not cool. Yeah, there, there is like a- if you like that's the, and that and that's the thing about these social forces in our culture. Like if you called the Hasbro dudes on the phone and were like, "Hey y'all, are you misogynist?" They would of course say no because no, some of the, our best the wives are women. Exactly, like because the fact that the toy made it all the way fully through production and is being sold without Ray in it lets us know that there are no women working in high levels at Hasbro. Like it, it just it just reflects that there aren't enough ladies around. You know, um, exactly. I know exactly what they would say if you asked them. They would say, "No, we're not misogynists, but all of our customers are." 
Mm, that's, that's what they would call that's it. That's an interesting that's, point. That's what people have been talking about in the context of Marvel and, and the, the fact that so many toys leave out Black Widow. Even, like, toy sets for specific scenes in, like, Captain America 2 in which she was riding the motorcycle. The toy set has Captain America with the motorcycle. But that is a whole aspect of Disney marketing where part of the strategy, people say, for Disney buying all these franchises, for buying Marvel for buying Star Wars is because they already have all the little girls with the princess stuff. Now they bought all the stuff that boys like. That's interesting. And that and that's that. why they don't bother marketing Black Widow nearly as much as the other Avengers. That's why they're not marketing Rey as much as the other characters in Star Wars because they don't want to sell them Rey action figures. They want to sell them Cinderella dolls. But this is a problem that goes back far longer than when Disney bought Lucasfilm. I mean, oh, absolutely. For ten years, they've haven't made a Leia doll other than the Slave Leia outfit. Yeah, right. that was actually uh, uh, that's actually a great opening to the multitudinous reasons why Carrie Fisher is awesome. Yes, because Alana, I, 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 I'm so glad she survived to be in the later films. Oh, absolutely, Alana. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure if you saw, but somebody asked her about something that someone said about they shouldn't sell the Slave Leia doll because what am I going to tell my little kid about that? And her response was absolutely perfect. Her response was, tell your son that this is an outfit that was put on my character to exploit me and I killed the man who made me wear it. <laughs> exactly. Right on, Carrie Fisher. She is in incredible. I love all the photos of her taking her mental health guide dog to all the red carpets. Yeah, good for her. That's I, awesome. I, I, I love all the videos of, of her talking about her um, bipolar disorder at conventions and stuff. There was one where I, I think a child asked her about it and she explained it in terms to a, to a child, you know, or sometimes I go really slow and sometimes I go really fast and I'm not good at riding a bike, but I can manage. And, and, and there's this whole, I'm not doing it justice at all, but she's incredible. She is a glorious beacon of light. Uh, mm -hmm. just ruthlessly cutting down the people complaining that she's old now, as if that wasn't going to happen in 30 years, as if Harrison Ford isn't old. Yeah, nobody goes yeah. over to Harrison Ford. We don't see women who are over 50 who aren't Helen Mirren very often. Exactly. Like, they just aren't around. They're not depicted in film. Like, women cease to exist uh, after they are moms. And then, and then and they, come, they can come back again when they're Helen Mirren or they're Betty White or their grandma. Like, there's just, there's no... Yeah. Except, except then there's the whole aspect that women get to play the love interest until they're in their mid-twenties, and then they start playing mothers, and then when they're in their thirties, they can play grandmothers. Or forties or something, but it's wildly right. skewed. It's very, very different. And yeah, like, Harrison age two, y'all, and you can see it, because time passes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It, it's ridiculous. It would be weird if they hadn't aged. Yeah. Like, it, I it, think it just, I think it made people uncomfortable because, uh, due to how... Leia is depicted, especially in Return of the Jedi. A lot of people found her very sexy. Like a lot of men, fan like that was like a yes. a pivotal sexual awakening was seeing Slave Leia, quote unquote Slave Leia, <laughs> that, and like nobody wa nobody wants to see their mom when they look at you know you know what I mean and and but that, that that's 
that is a critique of how women function in our culture, not a critique of Carrie Fisher. Yeah, yeah, you know ab- I mean? absolutely. That's another great clip of her on, on some talk show where she says that, you know, for 30 years, more than 30 years, people have been coming up to her at conventions and, and saying, you know, when I was a little kid, you were the first woman I saw on TV and got it and got attracted to, to put it in terms that aren't fucking creepy. Uh, and then she turns to Daisy Ridley and says, now that'll happen to you. For real. It will, too. And there's this look of horror on Daisy Ridley's face as if, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, but... it's it's hard it's hard to be the lady in, in the sci-fi room, but it's there are worse rooms to be in. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, true. And in and among Carrie Fisher's great takedowns of sexist bullshit are John Boyega's takedowns of... Of racist bullshit. Of racist bullshit, <laughs> it, it, exactly. Um, I forget the exact quote, but, you know, basically saying that, you know, it's one of the most successful movies of all time. Nobody is not seeing this movie because a black guy is in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it yeah, really, it there's, really, there's, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, it also reminds me of, um, who was it in Fantastic Four? Was that Donald Glover? I don't think it was, was Donald Glover. Michael, Michael B. Jordan. Michael, it B. Was Michael, Michael B. Jordan. Donald Glover's the one everyone wants to play Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, Michael B. Jordan, when someone asked him, are you concerned that people, you know, what are they going to think of a black guy being in the Fantastic Four? He's like, everyone's still going to go see the movie. Nobody wants to see that movie. Yeah, but that wasn't because there was a black guy in it. No, no, no. You know, John... Yeah, go, no, go ahead. No, please, go, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm fully in support of J.J. Abrams and and Lawrence Kasdan, and and whoever casted it. Like, they did such a great job bringing John into this story because we can't not talk about how he is a black actor given a hero role because he is, even though he starts as a stormtrooper, he makes epic top level decisions about how he's not here for their work and he's going to leave. Like yeah. that's all coming from him, clearly. But yeah. like, so they, so th- what's fascinating about John Boyega's character, like in particular, so John has a very appealing sort of Denzel Washington look to him. Like he has a very everyman face and what's fascinating to me is that John, um, he's he's born to Nigerian parents, but he's he's actually English. But they gave him the like classic Atlantic, like no accent American accent for this film, and I think they did it to enhance his everyman appeal. So and and to sort of cross like like the 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 the, the bullshit Hollywood reason for not casting actors of color in lead roles is because they're quote unrelatable unquote, which is obviously bullshit. But like, I think they were doing everything they could to position John Boyega for maximum relatability. So that, and and now we can use the overwhelming both critical and commercial success of this film with John in such a lead role to say, actually, no, like he can be on screen a lot like he can be he can be the one who is given a love interest which is a hallmark of of a lead role like do you have a love interest in this story if you do you're the lead role and and this is all this is all given to John Boyega and like that is what i want to see moving forward i want to see more people like no shade to chris evans but i want to see people who don't look like chris evans being being in traditional 
yeah. hero role. Yeah, as, as, <laughs> as much as I'm looking forward to the new Star Trek movie, it is another Hollywood Chris, right? Um, but well, saying, That's Chris saying, Pine, baby. <laughs> saying the black actor isn't relatable is just another way exactly what I was saying about the action figure people. We're not racist, but our audience is racist, and we need right. to cater to them. Yeah, and, and Finn is also a man of color who is not hyper-aggressive, who is not hypersexualized? He's not a predatory figure. He is a man and a man of color who is allowed to feel genuine fear. And we are invited to share in his fear and his devastation at, you know, the the um, destruction in the beginning of the movie that spurs him to to leave his post. And all all of these uh, shades of emotion that actors of color don't often get to play in big blockbusters. It's interesting because a lot of the times films suffer from tokenism, meaning they have, they have someone with a, with a marginalized status, just like, just, just to, for like, you know, they're and they're, and they're, they stay two dimensional. Um, and what, uh, there's a fascinating juxtaposition here because, they give Finn a huge amount of character development, but his role in the story has trope elements in it because it's a mythological story. So there's like some generic aspects to it, but it's not, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just really interested in that. It's, it's so much more textured than we see in other, in other huge projects. So again, like sh- shout out to everyone who thought it was a good idea to take John Boyega's phone call about this project because I think he really killed it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and also of course the other major new character is played by Oscar Isaac, who I believe is Guatemalan American. Right. None of the new three is a white dude. Ex- exactly. Only the villain. <laughs> Just the villain. Just the villain. Right. Who? Who in his. The one moment that stood out to me personally as kind of intimidating was, uh, I think it was right before he tried to interrogate Ray when he kind of mm. leaned over against the side of her head and in very sinister tone just told her, I can take anything I want. Right. Just that must push so many buttons for so many people because it's a thing that people do, not in terms of mind reading using the force, but in terms of abuse by people with institutional power. With Darth Vader, right, voiced by James Earl Jones, it was such an epic vocal performance from him. So, like, how do you compete with that? And Adam Driver does not compete with it. You know what I mean? Like his line readings for Kylo Ren are very soft spoken. There's a couple in particular that really grabbed me. When they say that one of the stormtroopers defected, he immediately knows which one it was. And the way he reads that is so soft. It's just a very like he he knows immediately. It's very it, to me it was very emotional. And then there's when he takes off his uh his gear for Rey and his face looks like that is and he has this his this straight up um like 1990s hot topic hair um it's just it's just but he's very quiet with her he doesn't yell at all he's only yelling when he's having his temper tantrum so like the, the that hot and yeah. cold is very it, you know it's very manic actually to to swing as wide as that i think it's so really it's, interesting when he takes the, the mask off Mm-hmm. Because obviously we all know Darth Vader had 
all that machinery because he'd been grievously injured. He's more mm-hmm. machine now than man. And so he needs mm-hmm. all this equipment to keep himself alive. Kylo mm-hmm. Ren obviously does not. He's in it strictly for the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need, you know, his voice box was not ruined and so now he has a weird computerized breathing slash voice machine. He literally just adjusts his voice for effect. Yeah, he's just muffled because he has a mask on, and he only and he only has a mask on because he's going for like Vader by way of hot topic. I mean, he's trying to, you know, like I said, I'm a Kylo Ren apologist, and like he's he is trying to get there. He's trying to connect. He's trying to know that he was right, whatever that is. Like, is he right in his darkness or is he right in his lightness? Like, he just he he can't settle. So yeah, he do, like he puts on the entire like the entire Darth Darth Vader persona. Yeah, he's um, re- he's really trying to throw himself into it. I mean, there's there's the scene which I I have no doubt is is a, a typical situation for Kylo Ren where he's just kind of sitting in his chamber journaling to Vader's helmet. I, I actually really loved that. <laughs> sure, I think it says a lot about his attempts to embrace the dark side, and maybe a lot about his, depending on how you want to interpret things, his relative weakness in trying to use the dark side. In that he's trying to emulate Darth Vader, but he hasn't gone through any of the pain and suffering that Anakin Skywalker went through on the way to becoming Darth Vader. He That's hasn't been enslaved. He hasn't lost his family at a young age. He hasn't seen his mother murdered. He hasn't been burned on a lava planet. He hasn't lost the love of his life. He just wants to be Darth Vader. But he hasn't gone through any of the trauma, physical or emotional, that leads someone to become someone like Darth Vader. He's just trying to do it because he feels like it and it doesn't work. See, that's starting to get me more interested in the backstory than I had been. Because there has to be some way that he got seduced by by Snoke. There's, there's, it's like, easy enough to yeah. seduce someone to the dark side, but I think to really, truly embrace it, you have to have hatred and anger. And other than his temper tantrums, he doesn't really show that. Yeah, in, instead, of, instead of deeper anger and hatred, he has petulance. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, and I, I actually, I read him as quite force gifted, and I think that's actually what started all the problems, is because I think being gifted with the force, uh, like any gift, like w- with any huge gift, is it, it's a burden too. Yeah, well, maybe he was hugely gifted, and I'm sure, being in the family that he is, that he was singled out, uh, maybe those expectations are what started him on the emo path. I think there, there's a difference, though, between being gifted in the Force and being gifted in the dark side. Because the, oh, fo- the Force is just kind of there, but to really tap into the dark side, you need anger, you need hate. You need to embrace those feelings to really channel the power of the dark side. And I think maybe there's just something in Kylo Ren where he's just not quite able to do that yet. He doesn't have the anger and hatred within him. He wants to, but he just doesn't quite have it yet because he hasn't experienced enough to cause those sorts of intense feelings. Yeah, and, and I think maybe he thinks that he can fake it till he makes it. If he does enough evil things then, you know, I, I just have to be evil now. 
Well, I, I killed the whole Jedi school. Look at me. I'm tough and evil. I, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit of a pull. I gotta do something else really evil. Oh, look, it's Dad. Yeah. Exactly. Like, that. the entire kind of thing that I was talking about in the first part of, uh, of this podcast is he's making these big moves trying to make it all make sense because he knows he's force gifted. He knows that's supposed to be meaningful. It's supposed to feel like something. And is it going to feel good or feel bad? He can't, like, it, it just will not resolve. Speaking of Kylo's temper tantrums, how often do you think the First Order maintenance staff has to go and replace all the workstations in his office? <laughs> well, I did, I, I did love that shot of the stormtroopers coming around the corner and then seeing that you know, all the sparks are flying and everything and just deciding, ah, I don't want yeah, to deal then, with this right now. We'll send a memo to maintenance. We need a new interrogation chamber. Meanwhile, I'm going that way. Nice. Uh, in your last in your last podcast, uh, where you were discussing the score, and then you went on to discuss a bit of the film, um, Scott in particular, um, you were like not really feeling it when we discover that Luke has been alone on that tiny ass island, um, well, looking at the ocean. Well, that's, I'm fine with him like going to live in seclusion, where he's like, "Oh, I failed so horribly. I need to go." meditate on this or I need to remove myself from the situation but it's just a little over the top where Ray gets there and climbs the, the, the steps of Mount Silea and she gets to the top and Luke is standing there in a very dramatic pose with his back you turned know why, the right? stairway staring you know. out over the ocean giving the impression that this is what he's been doing for however many years just standing there day after day after day after day staring at the ocean Oh my god, not at all. Do you know why he's like that? This is what I got from it. It's because even though she's not dead, Ray is Ray is like a freaking force alarm clock. Like Luke, Luke is a force genius and so is Ray and he can feel her coming. And he's so waiting he, for her. And so he felt her coming and decided, "Wait, okay, let me get up to the top of the mountain and get into my dramatic staring over the ocean pose so I give her the right first impression when she gets to the top of the steps." Yeah, because we already rented this helicopter. We're getting this shot. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, but like, whatever. Well, like, we don't. Like, we don't like compare that to the first meeting with Yoda, where he's just sort of like exploring to see why you on my planet, and he has a stew boiling in his hut. Meanwhile, Luke is arranges this dramatic staring out over the ocean pose. I think he doesn't know what to say, but like, no, like I think I think he's out. I think he's out there at the cliff because you can see really well from the top of a cliff. By the way, because because he can feel something coming. He, he's waving down to R two D two. No, just hey, like hey, it, Chewie, it, how's why is, why is he out there on that day? It's because he can feel her approach. That just means he's sort of a drama queen setting up this dramatic. He was a drama queen before. He's a dr- he's a he's. Well, I mentioned yeah. before all these Skywalkers seem to have issues. <laughs> Maybe it's just as well that the line is dying out. Assuming Kylo Ren also, doesn't have okay, kids. Also, okay, so like, so you think you think the Jedi, like you're Luke, you think the Jedi are extinct, and freaking one is coming. You can, like. Well, why wouldn't he go like, who is this? Let me run down to where the ship is and see who it is. Rather than, no, let me stare out over the ocean ponderously and allow them to sneak up behind me. Maybe it's a power move. Maybe it's an intimidation move. I am so confident I'll let you sneak up behind me. Maybe maybe, maybe it's like a power move. 
Also, he might think he might think that it is Kylo coming. I think mm. if he senses her coming, he can probably sense that it's someone strong in the light side. Or well, at least yeah, if, or maybe. at least if it was someone that strong in the dark side, he would sense that. Maybe. It also might be that he can feel the lightsaber because we know that the yeah, lightsaber yeah, calls. Because, yeah, apparently the, the lightsaber calls now, which I think you can allow for movie magic. Also, I think it's during Kylo's interrogation of Rey, he mentions that Luke ran away to find the first Jedi temple. So this, right. is, this is some, you know, sacred ground that he's been hiding out in for however long. And they can... If they want to go really over the top with the ancient Jedi stuff, and he's been like communing with the Force ghosts, which they they, they, they probably won't because they've had somewhat of a I don't really want to say a deft hand because JJ isn't known for deftness. <laughs> first off, but they've judged pretty well how to apportion that. So, you know, I, I don't think it's like we're in the Jedi Temple now. All the Force ghosts are here. Say hello to Yoda. Say hello to Ewan McGregor. Say hello to Hayden Christensen. I don't, Here's I don't Mace think... Windu. I was going to say, what are the chances we get a Force ghost of Ewan McGregor at some point? Pretty high. Pretty high. But I, I don't I don't think it will be like you just described, Glenn. I don't. I think no, they'll that, skip that's, a, that's, a who's that's, who that's, in the Jedi Temple. Yeah, that, like a that's, parliament yeah. of Force ghosts? Oh, God. Yeah, why do they even yeah. need new people to run the Jedi Academy? Just have the Force Ghosts do it for all eternity. Kylo can't kill them. Uh. It, it, it's, it's like in the first draft of Return of the Jedi, where the Force Ghost of Obi-Wan helps confront Vader and the Emperor at the end. Ooh, I'm so glad that wasn't in it. Oh, yeah. There's, Unnecessary. There's all sorts of crazy crap in the original drafts of, of the Star Wars trilogy. There were two Death Stars, and at the end of Jedi, uh, Luke commandeered one and renamed it the Life Star. Oh, shit. Oh, fuck. Seriously, dude. Yikes. Yeah, so... What, the yeah. massive turbo well, but, laser planted mm. flowers? Uh, I, I think he just kind of unplugged that. Oh, wow. <laughs> That makes but, me feel Glenn, Glenn, let's go back to what you said about J.J. Abrams not like not being known for deafness. Deftness. What are you, what are what do you mean? Well, okay, that's engaging a little bit with the Star Trek hater brigade again, okay. which I don't know how deep we want to go back into that. I have no tolerance for the Star I mean, Trek hater brigade. I know, <laughs> and I have very little tolerance for it myself, aside from some complaints about diversity, which are not present in Star Wars, which is amazing. Um, but there is the sense that he doesn't really have that sort of deft emotional touch, that the emotional core of his films are kind of borrowed in cynical ways, um, through just pure nostalgia, and I think those are things, those are complaints that you can have about some of his other movies, uh, you can have it about the new Star Trek movies to an extent, and we discussed that in the last show. Um, yeah. Super 8, you can say, is just about nostalgia for E.T. and those that era of Spielberg movies. Mission Impossible. That's... I haven't seen his Mission Impossible movies. I don't know if they have big emotional cores. I, I suspect not, because that's not what they're supposed to be. Um, but I think that is a complaint, again, that's not there in this new Star Wars movie. I think it does have 
interesting characterization in ways that a lot of JJ's movies don't. See, I, I think intelligent use of nostalgia is actually the sign of a master. Like, I think that's a sign that you understand the emotion of pop culture in particular, if you know how to use your nostalgia. And I, I think he uses it at the absolute highest level in Star Wars. And it's at a high level in Star Trek, too. But I think it's actually higher here in the Star Wars franchise. Yeah, I'm not objecting to the use no, of I know, nostalgia. I, I'm, I'm just saying there, there's a balance, which I think has been struck very well in this movie. I think he, I, I was about to say I think he struck that balance really well in both Star Trek and Star Wars. And Star yeah. Wars is a little more blatant because Harrison Ford is a is a major character and Mark Hamill is there and Carrie Fisher is there and the Millennium Falcon is there and Chewie is there. There are so major there are major parts of the movies in a way that Leonard Nimoy wasn't. But I, but I think he does the, the same thing in his Star Trek movies. He has enough familiar elements. He has stuff that's there strictly for nostalgia. And then he has stuff there that's part of the story but is familiar and a throwback to the old. And then he has stuff there that's solely to serve the new story. I think he strikes that balance well in Star Trek. And he does it again here in Star Wars where Han Solo is a major character in this movie and so is Rey and Finn. Yes, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, it's a... It's a different dynamic, of course. I mean, there isn't as much room to put in new characters in the new Star Trek movies, so that kind of skews things. Whereas in the new Star Wars, we've obviously been talking about the yeah. new characters almost this entire time. Well, they have different goals. I mean, the star- the new Star Trek movies are supposed to be focused on the established characters. They're supposed to be a revamped version but still focused on Kirk and Spock and McCoy. I think what it really is, Glenn, what you're kind of touching on about, is nostalgia really like valid emotional coding for the movie? And I, I think what it really is, is J.J. Abrams is a tone master. Like the tone of the Star Trek franchise, which he picked up, which was not his and which he is taking over, the tone is very good. Like the tone, it has a continuity with with previous material, and and I'm not as I'm not as familiar with the Star Trek franchise, but I still I you, but you still it still hits the the beats, and we still like the the, the characters connect to each other. There there are a lot of there are a lot Backward of tonal notes that I feel are hit very well, and there are some that are small that I don't think are often talked about, but uh, we can save that for our Star Trek podcast, I guess. Right. No, and I was just gonna say I think the tone thing. I think that's part of why seven is like episode seven is so successful is because like, so there's the look of it. There's the story arc, which is so, you know, it's so closely used to a new hope. And I'm sure that that is on purpose. And then there's just like really simple dialogue choices. Like one of my favorite lines in the entire film is when Finn says that they have to, like, he doesn't actually know how to take the shields down. He just needed to get down there and try to find Ray. And Han says, People are counting on us. Like, and that is a very basic thing to say. Like, it, like the, that language is very simple, but it is like the classic language of the OT. Like, the, like the characters don't, there's not a lot of, like, double talk or subtlety in the way the characters talk to each other because it is a, it's essentially a popcorn movie that is, like, based on... The heroes, like you know, as Glenn has mentioned, the hero's journey. So, like it, the the, there's not a lot of subterfuge going on. Like they speak to each other very directly, and and JJ lifted the best of that out of the OT and put it into his new story. Like the way they talk to each other is so perfect. 
like all of them actually, the way they speak to each other. The dialogue is excellent. And then of course was missing entirely from, from the prequel trilogy. And of course it helps that Lawrence Kasdan was around to consult on this script and co-write it. Um, because he, of course he wrote on Empire Strikes Back, but like that feeling that it's the same world, the people are talking to each other in the same way so that it's both true to the Star Wars world and also true to the action adventure PG and PG-13 sweet spot of filmmaking. So you have both you have both things going on because because I, I really feel like J.J. handled this masterfully. And also that J.J. is a fan. Like, he's a fan. And he wants to do it right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the nostalgia that's going into this is nostalgia that he feels. Yeah. Yes, totally. And also shout out to how he puts the camera down low all the time because that is BB-8's level. And so we occasionally get a BB-8 perspective. Wow, I had not thought of that. That is neat. I just love it. Let's have coffee, JJ. You can find (laughs) me on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this has been... I feel an excellent discussion of the new Star Wars movie and related issues. Uh, We are going to wrap up the show very soon, but first, I want to get into a new segment that I hope to do anytime we have a special guest on with us. Uh, What media have you been consuming lately? Could be TV, movies, books, podcasts, games, any any old thing that you want to give a uh, quick comment on. Uh, Alana, what media have you been consuming lately? Okay, uh, well, I just want to shout out to a podcast called Another Round, um, which is run by uh, Heaven and Tracy, who are on BuzzFeed, and it is two brilliant black women picking about pop culture and being hilarious. And the reason I want to plug them specifically is because I'm just really interested in hearing content with a filter of whiteness taken off it. And if white people aren't even in the room, then it is not a white project. And they're hilarious, and I love them. So that is the Another Round podcast, and you can find that on on iTunes and various podcast distributors, because I literally am like wanting to plug it and have people start listening to it. Um, uh, fabulous. Po- <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to have to uh, check that out. And then from a consumption and pop culture standpoint, I, of course, watched the Sherlock special, yes. um, which is a continuation of uh, of the, you know, 2010 modernized Benedict Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch Sherlock uh, with yes. Martin Freeman. Uh, I, I feel maybe we should give another spoiler warning right now, even though it's a couple of weeks old. But this this is something I'm kind of of two minds about it. What did you think of it? Well, there was a lot going on. As per usual, it was very densely packed with stuff because they make these sort of like 90-minute, essentially like tiny TV movies when they make a Sherlock episode. And so they had, like, yes, huge spoiler warning. They they teased it as like a one-of non-connected, let's-do-it-all-Victorian style but then what we actually discover once we're inside the episode is that it may or may not be a sort of drug-induced fever dream of of modern Sherlock who is about to go on a uh, what he thinks is a is a death mission like a mission from which he will not return uh, and so he's apparently taken quite a few drugs and this is like a continuation of the modern story at the end of at the end of series 3 and uh 
is it a dream slash like i don't know there, there are a lot of moving parts i usually have to watch sherlock episodes about five times before i understand what on earth is going on for real um and i've only seen it the once so far but i enjoyed all the uh, victorian aesthetics very much especially yeah, yeah. john especially watson's mustache yeah watson's mustache <laughs> is, is is always a fun addition uh they, they just had to grow so people wouldn't recognize him um mm-hmm. i obviously thought it would just be a, a one-off victorian show and that i think is obviously mark gatiss's input he's you know the co-writer on sherlock writes doctor mm-hmm. who episodes a- once a year now and he is big on victorian britain nostalgia and that whole um, and he's an arthur conan doyle super fan yeah for sure <laughs> yeah but then when it switched to modern Sherlock and the whole episode just kind of goes, whoops, we're in the Mind Palace, which I think comes off as trying to be more clever than it is at this point. Um, yeah, I blame Moffat for that. I, I blame a lot of the like overly ambitious narrative problems I blame on Moffat, but I enjoy blaming Moffat for stuff. I, yeah, I'm kind of of two minds on, on Moffat as well, because I think this past season of Doctor Who had some genuinely excellent episodes, and and some excellent episodes by Moffat. So there's a lot there that I like, and, and previous Sherlock I, I liked quite a bit. I mean, it was the last episode of Series 3, was it his last vow, I think? Yeah. Uh, by Moffat ended with almost an an explicit call for the extrajudicial assassination of Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I I, <laughs> I, I, I think that's I, I think that's a, a clear and very reasonable reading of, of the end of that episode. You see him as a Murdoch character, that's interesting. I guess that's true though. Like I guess Murdoch is our modern um that guy whose name completely escapes me, the yellow journalism guy. That guy, he lives in California. Hearst. William Randolph Hearst. Ah, ah, yeah. But he, yeah. he's, yeah, okay, all right. So then leading into this episode, which veers from all the Mind Palace stuff into a scene where Sherlock explains feminism to Watson... <laughs> which which has been derided in some quarters for uh, being Sherlock mansplaining feminism to a group of women, but I really think he is just explaining it to Watson because he's always explaining things to Watson. I shudder to yeah, think Stephen Moffat writing there... someone explaining feminism. Yeah, it wasn't great. I gotta say, as a woman, um, I I was making a cringe face during it. I can't remember all the details on off of a single watch, but um, there was some issues with the analysis of the abominable bride club yeah that's um, that's fair that's that's that, that's completely fair um <laughs> i i think what, I, yeah. I, could, I could have done with it as an entirely victorian episode just playing mm. around with that aesthetic um, i was totally ready for it yeah yeah i mean i guess they still wanted to move the story forward but they moved it forward like very incrementally I mean, if you, well, it if, did. Yeah, it allowed for um, what it, what it what it what it did do was it allowed for the reappearance of uh, of Andrew Scott as he appears in in Sherlock's Mind Palace now. Yeah, as a yeah. completely insane character. Yeah, he he and, just uh, he, he did, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying he can keep coming back in dream sequences forever now. 
forever. And he and Andrew Scott is terrific anyway. But like, I think the thing I enjoyed the most about the special was that. So okay, so the, I'll, I'll try to explain it um, clearly, but I don't, I don't know if I'll be successful. But so, <laughs> so at the end of at the end of series one, or sorry, sorry, at the end of series two. Uh, Moriarty and Sherlock have this confrontation on the roof and Moriarty appears to shoot himself in the head and he's apparently dead. Cause that's pretty definitive to shoot yourself in the head. Um, and, and actually specifically to put the gun in his mouth and shoot himself in the head. So then there's that happening. So then at the end of series three, uh, we, <laughs> we get a phone call on the plane that apparently Moriarty is back. So that's not supposed to be a thing because Sherlock saw him shoot himself in the head. So there's that. So when we join the Victorian story, we're, we're visiting an unsolved Sherlock case about someone who apparently shot himself in the head and then we're seen again later. So we don't know this when the episode starts, but when we see that what, what, what's actually happening is Sherlock is hanging out in his mind palace, it's clear that he's trying to solve this thing that he saw happen and is apparently not resolved, the, the death of Moriarty right in front of him. Because the, the case that he is obsessed with in his mind palace is the same, has the, shares the same features. And then whatever version like whatever world we're in when when uh when moriarty and and sherlock are talking to each other moriarty has a gun again and he's like fondly he's like super sexual with the gun and um and then like because it, but and 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 Sherlock can't. He's very frustrated by all this stuff because he's in several layers of mind palace at this point. And whatever version we're with in the room with Moriarty in this this setting, he's fr- he can't remember why he's why he's obsessed with Moriarty and the, and the pistol. He can't he can't remember he can't figure out why he's seeing him. But we know as the viewers that it's because he's trying to solve the mystery of I saw you shoot yourself. So there's all this emotion going on all these layers stacked on top of Sherlock trying to he's so he's so he's so upset about this unsolved case like because because it's an unsolved case on top of an unsolved case it's the abominable bride and then it's the case of Moriarty fellated his gun and shot himself with it in front of my eyes like (laughs) two unsolved cases um so like all those pieces are moving and and I think I think you know, because I, I just prefer Gatiss over Moffat all the time. But I whatever gentle touches were, were tying that whole thing together vertically, I was re- I was just really into. So there, that's that's my, <laughs> that's my piece about that. Sorry, I rambled for a long time. No, 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 <laughs> not not at all. Um, I I just I just had somewhat of a hard time getting into the mysteries really because the show is less about the mysteries now. Very especially true. when there's hardly about them at all. Especially when there are scenes where Lestrade is begging Sherlock to investigate something, and he's like, "What you want me to pay attention to five boring murders?" Like, well, maybe mm-hmm. a little, but that's I mean that that that's just the show that as it's been cultivated as as this kind of and also since that, it's a ho- holiday yeah. special and a one-off special there's an extent to which it's kind of a playground for the actors there's all the scenes for um martin freeman to do um bramble pelt candy snatch doesn't get quite as as much range as he as said in in previous episodes but everyone else just has a lark doing the victorian stuff although the worst part of the episode for me 
I, I think Mark Gatiss in the fat suit was dreadful. Oh, that was super unnecessary. Like, canon Mycroft is supposed to be portly or fat, like, in some way. It's supposed to be a big guy. And so, like, I feel like they decided not to do that when they didn't make Gatiss wear a fat suit ever. Yeah, so, like... but, but not, not just him in the fat suit, but the entire scene where he and Sherlock make bets on, you know, if you eat this yeah, pudding, yeah. then I bet you're gonna die within this time frame, because, gosh, you're just so darn fat. It, 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 it was just, it was obnoxious and completely unnecessary. Exactly, that's exactly right. It was obnoxious and completely unnecessary, and actually not even that funny, no, truth to be told. No, it, I really did not... Did not think it like was there, funny at all. there have been hilarious fat jokes, and I say that as a fat woman myself. But that, like, that was just not hilarious fat humor. <laughs> sure, yes, I, I can endorse that view, that viewpoint entirely. Um, but otherwise, otherwise, I mean, I had a good time watching it, so that's got to say something. I it's mean, interesting. I, I, yeah, I'm I'm ready. I'm ready for the next series. You know, whenever they get around to making that in 2022 or whatever. I like your point that you made, Glenn, about how the uh, the actors were really enjoying it, but maybe not so much uh, Peppermint Candy Slash. Cause like, uh, but the other thing is he he makes hella period pieces, and the others don't. Yeah. So I, I might have been it. Like he's like, sure, we all have to like really be into our facial hair, but I've actually done this before, and it's not that great. <laughs> like I don't know. <laughs> Although sh- yeah, Sherlock is a clean shaven and has different hair and all that, but like. Uh, R- Rupert Graves gets to wear those amazing mutton chops. Oh, jeez. Uh, yes. character. Oh, wow. Um, but, <laughs> okay. Um, oh, what? and and, and freaking um, Molly is in drag. Yes, yes, that was fun. Yeah, and Watson gets to be the one who figures it out before Sherlock does or is affected by it before Sherlock is or whatever the hell, whatever point they were making. But I, I enjoyed seeing... Uh, I forget the actress's name, L- Louisa or Louise something. Um, she I, she did great. Yeah, yeah, that that was another fun part of the show. Uh, Scott, do you have any media you've been consuming lately other than Star Wars? Uh, not really. Cool. I mean, other than the playoffs. Hey, I don't know. It's a dreary playoffs for me, but we don't do sports on this show. We don't? We are on a podcast network that is almost exclusively dedicated to wrestling and sports. And this is a podcast about, right now, Star Wars. And Sherlock a little. Maybe that's why they're the ones winning all the awards. How dare you? Is there a sports ball playoffs? (laughs) There there is a sports ball playoff going on. It has seemed a little dreary to me, but that's just Oh, is it it football? Yes. Okay. All right. I guess that could have sounded really sarcastic, but that was actually genuine ignorance. <laughs> that's that's totally fine. Um, Alana, actually, something else that I wanted your perspective on. I mm. know that you followed the first season of the Serial Podcast with great interest. Have you been mm. following season two? And what do you think? Oh, what a great question, Glenn. I was actually, I was about to, like, crack my knuckles and write on Facebook about this, but... Um, really? So, here's my problem with Serial Season 2. Actually, <laughs> there's actually... I'll try to keep it brief, because I might rant for a long time. Um, <laughs> do we need to so do one a of whole my, other show? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. Uh, so, one of my, like, 
spoilers, whatever, like we're about to talk about the content of, of the serial podcast. In series one, they talk about the murder of a Korean American woman by possibly a Pakistani American man. So there's this whole this whole investigation into the crime, blah, 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 whatever. Key point being that we're talking about the perception of brown people, specifically Muslim brown people, in the American culture. And, and there there's uh, plenty of ways in which we can critique the police investigation of the crime as having an Islamophobic cri- uh, like focus. Yes, that, like was, actually- that was one episode of season one that I found rather disappointing. There was like one episode dedicated to, you know, was the prosecution racist? And the general conclusion on the show was, nah. Right, and like, I think that was exactly the opposite interpretation of what they covered in that episode, which was basically that they hired a culture consultant to convince the jury that this young man, like, that it was an honor killing, essentially, yeah. uh, which is like a, just like a really racist, um, like not critically, fe- like it just, it just was not, anyway, so that, that was all in there. It was all part of the serial thing. And, and serial is helmed by uh, Sarah Koenig, who is a, you know, a, an upper middle class white lady. Uh, in Chicago, and she is, you know, a student of the of uh, Ira Glass, who, of course, is a huge public radio presence. Anyway, so like, really, really white people are talking about this problem in in Serial Season One. So Serial Season Two has debuted, and this season's story, and I, I've only listened actually to the first three episodes, although four did come out last week, and they just also announced that they're going to space them out more, which is weird. Um, anyway, so the the story this this year or this season is uh, is about a white army officer who goes a wall from his post in Afghanistan. Yeah, and th- this, uh, this season is um, people have probably heard about uh, the case of uh, Bo Bergdahl. M- most people probably heard about it uh, when he was returned uh, from mm-hmm. captivity with with the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think he came... It was all fairly recent. It was during the Obama administration that they found him and brought yes. him back. So, pr- pretty recent. Anyway, so there, there's a lot of discussion of what... And, and, and uh, so, Bo, he left... He, he abandoned his post in Afghanistan. He was captured by the Taliban and held in, in various places by, by various people for five years, which is a long-ass time to be a POW. So, what we're learning about on the podcast is all the things that he went through. And of course he was, he was captured and he was chained up. He was starved and denied sleep. He was beaten on occasion, all this kind of stuff. And that's all, that's all things. But my problem is that the hero is white Bo Bergdahl. The quote unquote bad guys are brown Muslims, you know, brown skin, uh, not white, uh, not Christian. And number one, we did this before. We were talking about whether or not brown-skinned Muslim um, Adnan was a murderer. And then, we're again, we're considering how bad are these brown Muslim people who, who are members of the Taliban. Like, we just, like, part of the critique of the war over there in general is that we're unbelievably culturally ignorant and don't know what we're talking about. Absolutely. Um, and here's... Sarah Koenig again in all her curious whiteness talking about this story that she doesn't like she doesn't know and, we and, don't and know just, anything and just about calling the Taliban on the phone and so there's all there's all that so there's there's brown stories through a white filter and there's plenty of that already and we don't need it so that's my first critique my second critique is that the current cultural atmosphere in the U.S. 
the current deadly serious refugee crisis, the current absolute hate-mongering of Donald Trump as a presidential candidate. We do not need a story that is so easily read as Islamophobic taking up any more space in our culture. Talking about how brown people are the bad guys in the war in Afghanistan does not serve anyone's interest. And I, and I would actually argue that it is actively unsafe for Muslim Americans in the U.S. that, that this bullshit is, is going on. Even, even in such a casual venue as Serial, all we're hearing about is the centering of Bo Bergdahl as the hero in his whiteness and the othering of the fact that he was a prisoner of the Taliban. Yeah, there are definitely uh, very troubling things that it engages in and feeds into, yeah. I also tend to be suspicious of a lot of reporting about the military because there are such sure. huge incentives to frame the narrative in a certain way to retain access for future stories about the military. And yeah, there's all that going on because the U.S., you know, my place of birth, uh, I love it, but it's a problematic mess. Uh, your fave really is problematic is. your fave is in fact problematic so besides all my political problems with the entire thing my other thing is that it is such a waste for sarah who's a lady to tell us another really 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 long story about a dude like i just i yeah. just not like it's just there's so many other things she could have done like even the true crime genre, and this is actually what I was going to Facebook about, so if anyone wants to come find me on Facebook in a couple of days, I read this absolutely amazing story about a woman in Washington who had reported a sexual... Oh, yeah. <laughs> about to talk about sexual assault, y'all. Um, who had reported a sexual assault uh, in detail. Like, she was attacked in, in her home by this guy. There were several salient features of the attack. Um the short version of the story is that people who loved her called the detectives saying like, so we know her and we're, we're kind of wondering if the story is true. It wasn't necessarily actively malintentioned, but like they inserted this grain of doubt into the investigation that maybe she had made it up, that it was a false report. And then later throughout the rest of the story, we learned that several years ago in, in Colorado, there was this other series of events. And we actually learned through the entire like thread of this long article that yes, there was really a rapist who was doing this, you know, had a particular way, method and, and, you know, had, had a particular calling card. And yes, in fact, this woman had been attacked by this same dude. So like, there's this amazing, compelling, true crime story out there that, that it's about women and the way they're positioned in society and would be an, an amazing opportunity to critique rape culture and i'm like sarah you're right here telling me that you're feminist and like you're telling this unbelievably dull story um about bo Bergdahl. it could have been more you could have done anything because it's npr and you're doing this yeah that is a that that is a fantastic idea and a way to use the monumental popularity that the first season had right yeah, so that was my super, like, 15-minute <laughs> perspective <laughs> on that fucking thing. Uh, no, Ooh, that's, that, 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 is, uh, that, that is what we're here for. Okay, I think that will do it for this installment of the Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular. 
If you would like to find me anywhere on the internet, first, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions for the show, you can email me at glennb at placetobenation.com. That's Glenn with two N's. Uh, if you'd like to find me on various social media, I am Glennybun, G-L-E-N-N-I-E-B-U-N, on Tumblr especially, on Twitter less frequently as time goes by. You can comment on the show on the Place to Be Nation Facebook page or any other place that it is posted. That is uh, where you can find me. Alana, uh, is there anything you'd like to plug? Any uh, blogs, social media? Well, I mean, the only place you can really find me is on Facebook, but I do post publicly pretty often about... uh, My big jam is uh, anti-racism, but more broadly it's anti-patriarchy capitalist patriarch nonsense because i'm a you know a pinko commie and that's just my name uh alana kelly on facebook i know only old people use facebook but i'm over 30 so there you have it exactly (laughs) uh scott are you still ghosting i by the by the way scott you're still with us i am cool (laughs) i I, um don't watch any of this stuff (laughs) there you go okay (laughs) Uh, and, and you're ghosting on the internet. You don't want anyone to find you or tell you or anything. You're, you're Luke before the Force ghosts tell him Ray is coming. <laughs> Except I'm not spending my days standing on the edge of a cliff dramatically looking out over the ocean. No, you It's a really pretty ocean, though, Scott. Have yeah. you seen that ocean? Yeah, it's it, so good looking. Yeah, it, it's, it's like Space Ireland. I'm more like Yoda. It is like Space Ireland. I spend my days in a hovel preparing simple food for myself. Mmm, good food, yes. Mmm. Thank you, Alana, for coming on with us. Thank you, Scott, for coming back with me. Thank you, listeners, for listening. And that will do it for us. Good night, nurse. If there are any moms who listen to your podcast, the fact that I was able to even see a movie when my baby was a newborn is, yeah, you know, that, that's, that's, be ama- that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs>